Hi, I'm Greg Mastrider, and this is my podcast on humankind and its future. Today, here with me is Viv Groskop, a British journalist, comedian, and author of fascinating books on classical Russian and classical French literature, life lessons from the Russian literature and life lessons from the French literature. I have really enjoyed reading those books, and as an avid reader and uh, originally uh, Russian uh, blogger, I could not miss the opportunity to speak to Viv. She is fascinating, she is hilarious, and uh, her insights from the classical literature apply to our daily lives. So let's dive into this podcast. So Viv, I've read uh, uh, in your book that you belong to the Dostoevsky party as opposed to the Tolstoy party. How come? Why? Uh, are you that uh, grim and philosophical? <laughs> oh, thank you for this question, Greg. And thank you for giving me time with you. I'm really thrilled to speak to you about my work. Yeah, this question of Dostoevsky party versus Tolstoy party, I don't know if this is a famous thing. Um, amongst Russians or amongst people yes, who love is. Russian literature. It is. Okay. I heard it for the first time from Boris Akunin. Um, I met him in London when we were judging a book prize together uh, for Pushkin House, a center for Russian culture in London. And the first thing he said to me before he even said hello was, <laughs> are you Tolstoy party or Dostoevsky party? And I think I replied something like, I'm going to any party that's going. Like, if there's a mm -hmm. party, I'm there. <laughs> so I'm more party party than Dostoevsky party or Tolstoy party. I think actually maybe since I first thought about this, I've changed my mind and now I'm Tolstoy party. Um, I just go between the two, really. I really find it very interesting that people like to try to draw these distinctions between these two writers. I mean, obviously, they're completely different. And when people are asking this question about which party are you, maybe they're asking, are you an optimistic person or a pessimistic person? Maybe they're asking, what is your attitude to religion? You know, you could say that Dostoevsky has maybe a conventional or faith-based attitude towards religion, whereas Tolstoy has more of a spiritual, uh, philosophical attitude towards faith. So it is a really interesting way of splitting those two authors and asking which do you more sympathize with. But I overall really would struggle. To, I don't think I could ever choose between the two of them. And I think in terms of understanding Russian literature, understanding Russian culture, understanding the 19th century and the history of the 19th century, I wouldn't ever want to separate those two authors because you need both of them to understand. And in terms of world literature and our understanding of the novel, You definitely need both of them to understand. So I'm at the party drinking Samagon with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Definitely. That's a great answer. Uh, I also tend to fluctuate between the two parties. Uh, 
drinking something uh, uh, at one of them and <laughs> and then something at the other. <laughs> um, it's very interesting, you know, uh, having read your books and especially uh, the one on uh, life lessons from the Russian literature, uh, your perspective uh, as uh, a foreigner, even though you once thought that you had uh, Russian roots, uh, as you write in the book, uh, what do you think... Uh, is different in your perception of, uh, let's say, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky than uh, the perception of uh, Russians born and raised uh, in Russia? Well, this was a big surprise for me when the book was first published in Russian. So the book first appeared in English in 2017. And I guess I never thought that a Russian audience would read this book. I just... It was kind of beyond my wildest dreams to think this. I'm so happy that this book has been published in Russian and I had a fantastic translator in Dmitry Shvelnikov and I have a great relationship with my publisher, Individuum Books, who I really, really respect and appreciate the work that they're doing. But it was a big surprise for me and slightly shocking and a bit frightening to know that Russians would be reading my my interpretation of their great authors. <laughs> because if I'd have thought that Russians would read this, I would probably never be able to write it because I would think that, you know, how can I possibly know anything about this? But the really interesting and surprising thing, I think, has been that Russian readers who I've heard from, especially on Instagram and, and different social media platforms since the book came out in Russia uh, in 2019, uh, The stereotype that you have of these authors that Russians have is the same stereotype that we have in the UK, like or generally in the Western mentality, but in particular, I can talk about the British context. The stereotype of these writers as very heavy, boring, not relevant, something that you're forced to study at school. Um, I was really surprised that Russian readers echoed this feeling about these authors. Obviously not all readers, but as a stereotype, many said, oh, I'd given up on Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, uh, even maybe Akhmatova or Bulgakov because, you know, we've been told so much about them from childhood and they're on this pedestal and it's just all too much. And it's too much like having to take your medicine. And I was really, really surprised. And I found that really refreshing because it meant that whatever I had to say about these authors was something new and was something different and was making them relevant to the 21st century through the eyes of a complete outsider. The view of these authors in Britain, especially when I was growing up in the 1970s and the 1980s, was also that they are very heavy, inaccessible, uh, not relevant, too difficult to read, only for very, very clever people. You must be very clever if you're going to read these books, only for academic people, maybe only for people who speak Russian or can compare translations. So there were a lot of barriers. Um, I didn't grow up in a household where it was normal to read these kind of books. Um, that's maybe another very interesting difference between then Soviet culture and British culture. Um, I would say in most 
post-Soviet households. I mean, I was first in Russia in 1992 and there were books everywhere. Everybody's house was full of books. You know, Russia has always been a nation and the Soviet Union generally, you know, a whole serious attitude um, towards reading, which perhaps was not quite so prevalent in British culture in the 70s and the 80s. So my parents did not go to university. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I didn't grow up um, in a house where we talked about Anna Karenina around the kitchen table. Um, I certainly didn't see a Chekhov play until I was probably 19 or 20 when I was living in St. Petersburg. Um, so there's some really interesting similarities as well as interesting differences there. But the point in common is that I think generally, and I've heard this um, from American readers as well, because the book has been published in America, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, there grew up this mythology around these great Russian writers that was prevalent everywhere that these writers are just too heavy, um, they're too difficult, they're only for special people. And that was the mentality that I wanted to turn completely on its head because I discovered when I was a lot younger, you know, I first read Anna Karenina when I was about 14 or 15. And I was amazed that, you know, this is a great story. You know, this is like Austen or Jane Eyre. You know, this is totally accessible and beautiful and relevant and spoke to me as a teenager. And so I began to peel away the layers of all our prejudices and stereotypes that have grown up around these books to try and find a personal reaction. And I think that's what people have really responded to in this book is the invitation to revisit books or go to books that frightened you and find a personal reaction to them. Because for me, this is one of the most precious interactions that we have Um, in human existence is to be able to have a conversation across time. You know, if you read a book that was written in the 19th century and it touches you, you're having an emotional conversation or an intellectual conversation in your imagination with somebody who died 200 years ago. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I think it's really an extraordinary thing. And I guess you have a similar experience if you listen to music that was composed in a different century and it still touches you. There's something very, very deep about these works of art that can last uh, a very long time and speak to us of universal truths about human experience that can really make us feel less alone. Because what is less lonely than realizing that not only does someone else understand you, but someone else from 200 years ago understands you. I think that's phenomenal. I fully agree with you. And it was fascinating for me that uh, once I started uh, reading this book, I thought, well, it will definitely be a much different perspective from uh, uh, the one uh, uh, by Russian authors, uh, literary critics, etc., etc. And then I, I read about your perception of, say, uh, Eugene Anegin or uh, War and Peace or Anna Karenina, and I, and I totally uh, found it uh, relatable, which, uh, which is exciting how the literature bridges this gap between uh, nations. Um, well, obviously, you are a big 
uh, connoisseur of Russian culture and literature, so that makes uh, it more accessible to you. But uh, I fully agree with you that uh, it, it can be enjoyed by people who don't speak the language and don't know a lot about the culture and the history. Uh, even though Nabokov said that uh, Eugene Onegin is uh, impossible to to understand if you don't speak Russian and uh, translated it in like 2000 pages with this vast commentary. Um, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's that necessary to understand all the tiny, tiniest details about how uh, pieces of clothing in the, <laughs> the 19th century Russia were, were called. You write that it was a, a challenge uh, grappling with this particular work. Uh, is it correct that in, uh, let's say, Britain and uh, in the West generally, it's not a very popular uh, piece of literature, Eugene and Egan? Yeah, it's very difficult sometimes to talk about these great works in the context of, I guess, native English speakers. Maybe there would be a different awareness amongst French speakers or Italian speakers of some of these works. You know, sometimes uh, Eugene Onegin is known as a Tchaikovsky ballet rather than as, you know, perhaps the first novel. So it really depends who you're talking to. You know, in academic circles amongst people who learn Russian, obviously it's the the top of the top but if you were to stop anybody in the street and say what's Eugene and Egan they wouldn't know what that is and if you showed them it written down they would say who is Eugene Wonjin you know it's not a known thing at all here um it's really interesting there's I'm sure that there are lots of similar gaps um between you know, English literature, American literature, and how that has been received in translation. I was always amazed when I first came to Russia in the early 1990s that everybody wanted to talk to me about Sherlock Holmes and Jack <laughs> London. And for me, those were things that we never really talked about. I mean, obviously, I knew who they were, but they were not important uh, on the level that they have this huge, huge importance for um, then post-Soviet readers. So yeah, Pushkin is a really interesting, an interesting example because really Pushkin is Shakespeare. You know, Pushkin and Shakespeare are on a level. They have a similar contribution um, to world literature and also to the literature of their own languages and their own culture. But I don't know if it's timing for Pushkin in a commercial sense of, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky benefited from the fact that the novel became a form at the time that they were writing. Um, and at the same time, you have Victor Hugo writing Les Miserables, and then you have Flaubert writing Madame Bovary. So people have an idea in their minds of what a novel is and how you're supposed to read it and what it is supposed to do in your life, what position it occupies in your life. And that wasn't the case. Um, when Pushkin was writing. So maybe Pushkin is a sort of victim of early commercialism. I don't know. And if he had been writing later, then his works would be better known to an international 
lay audience as opposed to an academic audience. But on an academic level, he's definitely as appreciated here as he is um, in Russia. Okay, that's uh, that's good to know. Um, and thank you for those kind words. I, I, I rarely hear comparisons uh, of Pushkin with uh, Shakespeare. That's quite a big statement for an English-speaking person, especially. Um, <laughs> but I do agree with well, it. Well, you know that um, I, love, I love Russian culture, so I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask about your perception. Uh, let's come back to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, um, of those two great authors. Why do you think they were in particularly i think they too hold the the pedestal for uh most popular russian uh, writers of all time and have been doing that for for many decades and don't uh, seem it doesn't seem to go away why why the two of them why not turgenev why why not bunin for example why are these two gentlemen uh who were both rather peculiar in their uh, views, in their uh, life stories. Uh, why, why, why them? I think we have to look to a superficial answer here. And I'm not saying that uh, this is a reason why they should not be, um, be popular and still be read now. I think that their work is universal. It is lasting. That's why we're talking about it right now. But I think the reasons for the spread of their work in the late 19th century and the early 20th century are quite superficial in the sense that there's a mythology around both of those authors that there is not um, amongst many authors of the time. Um, there is um Uh, an aesthetic dimension to this. You know, they both look like really serious, um, quite intimidating Russian authors. Like they look the part. Um, Tolstoy in particular, because he had such a long life, you know, he is able to create a vast number of works. Dostoevsky in his lifetime is very prolific. Uh, they both have very colourful backstories and they have you know, very interesting moments of controversy, disagreement in their biographies, many warring factions among, amongst their fans of the time and afterwards. So in some ways, superficially, they are both, and I, I really hate to say this, and I kind of hate myself for saying this, but I think I have to say it's true. They both have a very strong author brand. I'm sorry uh -huh. to say that, but I think that is one of the reasons, you know, clearly it's because the author brand stands in front of a body of work that stands up to serious scrutiny over time. And, you know, millions of readers love these authors and years, years, years later, they love these authors. But that longevity is not only down to the quality of the work and the emotional resonance of the work. It's also down to this mythology, which I think with both of them is very strong. And when you picture um, a classical author, you picture in your mind somebody who looks like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, even now. Um, and probably... I would say that their images are two of the most powerful images of what we think of as a classical writer, um, even more so than maybe, you know, Plato or Socrates um, as an image and as an idea, 
they represented something very, very powerful. Well, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, like like Plato and Socrates are the the ones who come to mind when you when you think about uh, classical philosophy. So similar similar with those two guys. Uh, what's your top three? Uh, pardon the banal question, but uh, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting since you haven't mentioned this in the book. What's your top three? Uh, books by Tolstoy and by Dostoevsky. Top three by each of them. Yeah. Okay, wow. So the books that I feature in my book in the Samorazvitya Patalstomo from Tolstoy are Anna Karenina and War and Peace. So I would definitely say Anna Karenina first for me, just as a personal choice, then War and Peace. And then probably the death of Ivan Ilyich as mm. number three. Uh, for Dostoevsky, I would say Crime and Punishment, which is in the book. Then maybe, is it called Dvainik, the double? Yes, yes. Yeah, the double. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Love, love, love that book. I mean, if I could have written about that in the book, in my book, I would have done. It's extraordinary piece of work. Um, and then probably, um, although this is totally left field and I always feel like it's an outlier for um, Dostoevsky's work, Birne Ludi, Poor Folk, mm-hmm. um, very different. Um, yeah, but I love the strangeness and almost the innocence of that book, which to a British reader is quite Dickensian, more so than a lot of his other work. Um, I love the range. I think, you know, Dostoevsky has a a bigger range um, than most people would think. So I would say those people will notice I haven't chosen Devils, I haven't Biasi, I haven't chosen Brothers Karamazov, uh, simply because I regard them more as like quite hard work. <laughs> and as anybody who's read my stuff, I will read those things. And I hope always to reread and reread more than once in my lifetime. You know, that's what's great about these authors is that you can return to them as you get older, or you can read a third and then maybe in a year's time, read another third. You know, they're very challenging, some of these authors to read all in one go. Um, But I really like the books that are a bit different or give an emotional connection or are something that is a bit quirky and fun. And The Double by Dostoevsky Dvonik is really the quirkiest thing. It's quite, it's very sort of gogol kind of feel. Yeah, very very psychological uh, piece of work. Although I would say that uh, about uh, demons or devils, BSA, uh, I'd say that I've, I've recently reread it and uh, it, it was uh, surprisingly an easy read. Maybe it's like, uh, it's just me, but <laughs> I thought that it's, it's, it's okay. funny, witty. I will, add, and... I will add this to my list <laughs> to reread. Okay. I wanted to ask a question that's uh, probably troubling many uh, Russian patriots and intellectuals currently with the war going on and uh, uh, Russian culture uh, being cancelled in some parts of the world or at least uh, uh, being not as widely promoted as uh, as it used to be, which is understandable and uh, considering the circumstances. Um, Do you think this will affect uh, the image of Russian classics? Because I hear that uh, uh, apprehension from uh, many of my friends, um, 
the overwhelming majority of uh, whom uh, have never supported Putin and strongly uh, disapprove of everything that's going on, many of whom had to flee the country, like myself, etc., etc. But they are worried about the Russian culture and the impact on on its global perception. What do you think about this? Well, obviously, it's a really problematic time for Russian culture. And I guess some people would argue, well, too bad. You know, I mean, there are much more serious things at stake um, in Ukraine at the moment. So in some ways, I do feel, I feel sad. You know, I feel depressed about that side of things. But I feel so horrified and devastated by the reality of the situation that that almost takes, it really takes second place, unfortunately. I do take some comfort in, uh, I did an interview early on, uh, maybe in March 2022, so shortly after the invasion. I did an interview with Andrei Kurkov, the Ukrainian writer, and he writes his fiction in Russian. You know, he's he was, you know, he says, you know, my parents were Soviet, not Russian. My parents were Soviet. He was born in Leningrad, but he now lives in Kiev. He's taken Ukrainian nationality. He doesn't plan to return to Russia ever. Um, but Russian is his language. He, he also speaks Ukrainian and he writes his nonfiction in Ukrainian. And he said, I will continue to write my fiction in Russian because Putin does not own the Russian language. It is my language and it's the language of my parents, my family. It's my language. And that really touched me deeply that he would say that. And I've had several conversations with Ukrainians um, who've come over to Britain about this because obviously I'm a Russian speaker. You know, I've studied Russian for 30 years. I love the Russian language. Um, and it's really sad to me that many people feel they can't speak it anymore. And I can understand why they don't want to. And, um, you know, I now have to start to try to learn Ukrainian. You know, we all do. <laughs> um, but the truth is, Kurkov is right. You know, Putin doesn't own Russian culture. He doesn't even really care, let's be honest very much about any aspects of Russian culture or literature. It's not his area of interest. Uh, he doesn't own these things. He cannot own your mother tongue. He cannot own your language. So we must do everything that we can to hold on to these aspects of culture, to hold on to these universal truths that can be represented um, through, uh, through literature. Um, Mikhail Shishkin has also spoken beautifully about this, um, that we must be very clear where the boundaries lie, um, but we also must not lose hope. Um, and it very often hope, um, the first place to find it is in writing and in art and in literature. And that can only be accessed through language. So if Russian is your language, then I really hope contemporary writers will continue to create. Um, of course, this issue of cancellation, it's really to do with market forces. You know, a lot of it is to do with taste. You know, it's not, it wouldn't be tasteful at the moment uh, to host any kind of promotion of, of Russian culture or Russian literature. It would be deeply unpopular, but that's not the same as a cancellation. Uh, we have to be very careful how we regard these things. And in any case, historically, 
many cultures and languages and the literature of those cultures come in and out of fashion all of the time and they still survive and thrive. So I hope we can keep a sense of proportion about this, keep a sense of hope and always remember that culture only belongs to us. It belongs to those of us who create it. It belongs to those of us who consume it. It doesn't belong to any political entity. And if we can remind ourselves of that, I think it keeps us hopeful. Yeah, I I find your words very inspiring and uh, I do agree with uh, them. Although I think if uh, Putin doesn't own the Russian language and Russian culture, I see no reason to to think that it should be like um, not in good taste to promote it right now. Uh, even even uh, I, I would say it would be the good thing to do to to make a more clearer distinction between uh, the current atrocious war committed by people who do not represent the Russian culture and who don't care about it at all and and uh, the great culture that has always uh, that has for a long time existed and will will I hope exist uh, for many centuries to, to come and will also uh, give world more pieces of art literature etc um, also, I, while uh, uh, rereading your life lessons uh, uh, from the Russian literature, I, I had a déjà vu while reading the parts about uh, Anna Akhmatova uh, and uh, her fight, her struggle during the Stalinist times, uh, uh, and also about, you, you, you mentioned uh, the life story of uh, Mandelstam, who who is also, I, I think this rings a bell. Really, it's not as bad in 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 modern Russia for people of art as uh, during the Stalin regime. Obviously, uh, things are um, not as atrocious. Well, well uh, uh, even even though it's it's not a very a uh, big consolation. Um, do you see uh, any parallels uh, for modern uh, writers who still continue their work in Russia? Poets, uh, if you think about the stories of Ahmatova, of uh, uh, Gumilov, of uh, Mandelstam. Yeah, it's very difficult to talk about this, I think, because the conditions in which writers are operating are so radically different in terms of the commercial market that they operate in has completely changed our attitude towards globalization attitudes towards literature in translation those forces are not really relevant to discuss in the soviet context so it's very hard i think to draw parallels one thing i do think is interesting is to have an awareness of what you might call, and maybe this world is too old, this word is too old-fashioned, dissident Russian culture. Because the culture that you're talking about that deserves to be preserved and talked about now is dissident Russian culture, which could be, you know, Shishkin would be an example of that. Um, and there are other, you know, contemporary authors who I know are working outside Russia and being published in translation. And there's a number of of um, people in the UK who are campaigning for these writers to maintain their contracts, um, you know, because they're not 
connected uh, to anything that's happening um, in Russia and they deserve to have their work, uh, to have their work continue. I think maybe if this situation continues, this awareness of dissident culture perhaps will become louder and stronger, um, which would be good on a superficial level, on a deeper level as to whether that dissident culture could attempt to make regime change, that's a whole other question. And if you think about the writers um, of the Soviet time who would be regarded as dissidents, and I mean, Akhmatova never left um, the Soviet Union. Her, her resistance was from the inside, but I'm thinking of writers who left, um, even from, you know, Solzhenitsyn, who is a very complicated um, case study. But writers who left they were able to talk openly and express their um, disapproval, um, their disgust about the regime. But could you argue that this really made any difference in the long term? Well, probably not. And I think at the moment, people's attention is very concentrated on what could make a difference, what can change this situation. So perhaps there is a way for dissident writers to align themselves together and more strongly um, against this. Or perhaps they want to continue to, you know, write their work and make their work in a way that is not political. <laughs> you know, this is, that's the, that is the parallel, is that once again, if you are a writer who writes in Russian, you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose to be apolitical. Uh, that's a luxury that only writers in the West have. Many writers in the West don't have to take any political position ever. Um, that's now very difficult if you're a writer who writes in Russian, in the same way that in the Soviet period, you couldn't say, oh, I don't really mind who's in power. <laughs> it was that it's a luxury. So that's a, a parallel that has unfortunately repeated itself. And it's a real, you know, it's a burden for writers because they may not be political and they may not want to take a stand on this, but they have no choice. Well, I think you have to be heartless to not take a stand uh, in today's circumstances. Uh, so maybe you you don't uh, uh, become an openly political writer, but you, you do express it uh, maybe in a... Uh, less direct way but you you make it uh, understood to your uh, to your readers to your audience what what you believe in and what's what's good and what's bad uh also you mentioned uh, that Akhmatova did not leave uh the Soviet Union um and maybe uh well many people in Russia currently uh, believe that maybe those who stayed would have more um maybe moral authority, moral weight uh, among, among the people uh, since they're uh, facing the many, many risks if they openly speak against the war, for example. So those dissident authors, I think, should also not be, not be forgotten because I, I, uh, I encounter this very often in uh, Western uh, media and among uh, Western people that they support dissident writers from Russia who have left and uh, print their works uh, outside, which is not a bad thing. I myself also left the country because I believe that the risks are too high and the ability to continue my work is more important than losing some uh, influence over people who, who disapprove of this 
decision. But still, I, I, I wouldn't say that those who who left or those who stayed made the, the, the correct choice. Maybe the, uh, the new Ahmatovas uh, and Pasternak's of uh, the modern Russia will be born uh, among those who decided to stay. What do you think about that? Yeah, maybe. I think it's very difficult on a public level for anyone in the West to support anyone inside Russia at the moment, because that association alone can be dangerous for the person inside Russia. You know, you see That's already true. from the, the, you know, the journalist from the Wall Street Journal, who is currently um, awaiting trial, that any association with someone with a Western connection is seen as, you know, this word traitor, which we haven't heard since the 1930s. You know, you're asking about parallels. Well, the word traitor is a direct mm -hmm. parallel with that era. And the idea that, you know, West bad, Russia good, uh, if you talk to West, you are bad, you are traitor. Uh, it's very powerful. So I think this idea, I agree with you that it's not simple for everybody to make a choice and not everybody can leave. Not everybody can speak out even. And, and not everybody wants to leave in the same... because it's their country. No, and not everybody wants to. It's their country and they have family responsibilities and we have all kinds of reasons why life is difficult and complicated. Um, but very possibly this work that you're suggesting, it will be created behind closed doors and it will emerge later in the same way that Ahmatova's work emerged a lot later. Yeah, we will see. Uh, you are a big expert in, in uh, uh, world culture and not uh, not just Russian literature, but also uh, Western literature in particular. I really enjoyed your book on the lessons uh, uh, learned from French writers. Um, how would you define uh, the place of Russian literature among the world literature? What's, uh, what's the, its place and uh, what's different about it from... Uh, other European literatures? Well, seeing as we are mostly speaking to a, a Russian audience here or an audience who loves Russian culture, then I have to say the place that Russia occupies is number one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I need to back that up with some evidence. I think there is something very magical and special about Russian literature. And really, you know, we talked a lot already about Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and they're at the heart of it. But for people who then discover them and then go on to discover other writers and start to read Gogol, Chekhov, Bulgakov, um, you know, many, many, many examples. Uh, it's endless. You know, I've been reading Russian writers for 30 years and I'm always discovering, you know, some new writer like you know, Davlatov I've just discovered. Mm -hmm. I have lots and lots of, you always have lots of gaps. And the more you find the gaps, the more gaps appear. Um, but this is a very, very rich, very, very, very rich classical tradition. Um, is that better or worse 
or comparable? How do we rate these things next to French literature, English literature, American literature, Italian literature, Dante? Uh, it can be very difficult, I think, to rank these things. And it's one of the things I talk a lot um, about in, in the book, in Samoras Vitia Patostomo, is we are almost encouraged, I think, as readers to think that this thing is the best and this thing you must read and this is the most important. But in reality, all of our reactions to this literature of any culture, of any nationality, are extremely subjective and emotional. And it's only through subjective and emotional reactions that this literature survives. You know, it's not enough for us to read this um, almost like a professor of mathematics and say, oh, tick, 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 yes, correct. This this has been done correctly. That No, you have to have an emotional connection. And the emotional connection of every reader will be completely different. Um, so I would never suggest that I will only respond most positively to Russian literature and then everything French comes in second place and everything English third place and then American literature. There would definitely be in my top 10 of, of my most, the, the reads that are the most meaningful for me. There would be all kinds of things in there. Um, some of them really, really famous and classical, some of them um, something completely unknown. So I think the most important thing is to continue to read what you love, um, certainly respect um, these classical definitions um, of what we used to call the canon. You know, people used to call this the canon, um, especially in academic terms of canonical literature, you know, the things that everybody is expected to read. And I think that that as an idea is being really challenged at the moment as well, because throughout the 20th century and now the early 21st century, we discover all of the writers who were overlooked, who didn't get published, who didn't have an opportunity, um, in particular women, in particular people from lots of different kinds of social groupings who were suppressed or were not economically able to participate in the business of writing. And we start to evaluate what that can and looks like. I do think even in the face of that re-evaluation, Russian literature has such a strong grounding in being really the founding fathers of the contemporary novel uh, in Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, that Russian literature, no matter how much we re-evaluate this canon uh, and talk about more marginalised writers, which is really important, um, no matter how much we do that, I think they will always be at, at the top of the tree. Um, and maybe, I don't know, somebody will come to me and say, oh, what about Proust? What about Shakespeare? What about Austin? What about um, Nabokov, who I consider to be more of an American writer than a oh. Russian writer? <laughs> and of course, you know, these people are gods. But I do think that Russian literature occupies a very special and particular place in the mathematical equation of evaluating world literature. Let's put it that way. Wow, that was a thorough approach, especially the mathematical equation part. Um, why do you think that Nabokov <laughs> is an American writer? 
Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, well, yeah, obviously, yeah, it's a big question. Um, I had to really tackle this question when I was writing the book because initially there was a chapter um, about Nabokov and about Lolita. Um, mm. There was also a chapter um, about uh, uh, Ratushkinska. Um, both of these chapters were taken out of the final edition. Um, the Nabokov chapter was so almost impossible to write because Nabokov is almost a universe all of his own. He's like a he's like an alien. He's such a an extraordinary genius, and you know his brain is so enormous. His facility with language, you know, as you said earlier, only Nabokov would write a translation for Eugene and Agin that is like about 20 times longer than the original Eugene and Agin with millions and millions of footnotes and then alternative footnotes. I mean, Nabokov is, is really, you know, you've got like Russian literature, American literature, English literature, French literature, and Nabokov. It's like, but when I was really thinking a lot about this and the book I was writing about in that chapter, that sort of disappeared chapter, um, I was writing about Lolita and obviously he wrote Lolita in English and he later translated it himself into Russian. And I really felt that his place in terms of how he has been received by the public and how he is read is much more within the tradition of American 20th century literature than it is within the Russian tradition. Um, so I think of him much more as being part of the American faculty than the Russian faculty. Um, maybe because of the the weight of Lolita, you know, Lolita is such a huge, a huge phenomenon. Um, and the thing that people would know Nabokov best for, um, perhaps I'm biased by that. But yeah, he's, uh, Nabokov deserves his own his own special section of the library, definitely. And um, I'm, I have a really problematic attitude towards Nabokov. I find him very, very difficult to read. Uh, I don't think he has such an emotional pull for readers. I think he's a very psychological, intellectual writer who is always playing games with you. And I much more prefer... A approach that is more classical, that is more immediately emotional, that is more concentrated on storytelling, um, that is closer to Tolstoy. Um, but Nabokov is never boring, that's for sure. Yeah, well, so let's agree on the special section part, because I personally consider Nabokov probably the summit of Russian literature. And even though he, not only Lalita, but many other of his famous works were written in English, I, I think here he 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 has the right to transcend any uh, linguistic barriers and use any language uh, which he's so so capable of, so so proficient at. Let's play a game, a classical game, uh, mm, a classical section of uh, this program. It's called like Bunin. Uh, you uh, may have heard that uh, Ivan Bunin uh, had a tradition of uh, labeling many of his contemporaries uh, with uh, some short, uh, witty, uh, uh, short, witty phrases uh, characterizing them, uh, usually in a bad light, uh, saying that uh, 
um, this writer is uh, banal, this writer is stupid, etc., etc. In in uh, this section of the program, like Bunin, I ask the guests to give short uh, descriptions of some uh, writers. In this case, let's focus on Russian writers. So just a couple of words uh, on uh, the names that I will mention. Um, anything that comes to your mind, it may be complimentary, it may be um, not complimentary, whatever you choose. Um, you don't have to spend much time uh, uh, choosing the words. Uh, I don't think anyone will get offended. Uh, <laughs> so uh, shall we start? Yeah, okay, I understand. Okay, let's start with uh, Pushkin. Romantic, gentlemanly, complicated. Okay, very nice. Turgenev. Delusional, also quite romantic, but romantically delusional or delusionally romantic. Misunderstood, underrated. Mm. Why do you think he was misunderstood? I think Turgenev was a very complicated person. And I, from what I understand from the biographical um, sources that I've read about him, he was very conflicted as a person. He was a real kind of seeker of, or someone he was questing. You know, he was always trying to, it was like happiness was always just beyond his grasp. And he was always, he traveled a lot, you know, he's very restless. Uh, and despite, you know, he's from a wealthy background, from quite a securely wealthy, uh, wealthy background. And so he was able to really have that kind of grand tour uh, mentality of the 19th century and go wherever he wanted. And very complicated love life and constant obsession yeah. with various women. And, um, you know, the king of unrequited love, if you like. But I think sometimes he's misunderstood in the sense that his actual works are quite beautiful and simple. They are not full of that turbulent complication. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like A Month in the Country, which is this wonderful evocation of, mm -hmm. you know, very nuanced relationships between people. It's very witty. It's very simple. Um, but I think he maybe has, like a lot of writers, that overlay of his biography kind of infects people's uh, perception. Maybe this is from a, uh, you know, a literature in translation perspective, not from Russian readers' perspective, but it infects your understanding of that writer. I mean, I think Proust is another example of this, actually. People would know more about the biography of Proust than mm -hmm. they would know his actual work. Uh, and with Turgenev, I think also like Proust, there is a simplicity there, there's a beauty there, there's a, there's a poetry but it is underrated and misunderstood, I think, because the life of the writer is not the same as the life within the books or the plays. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, thank you for the clarification. Um, I can tell that you. To... I can. I can tell that you disagree, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, well, uh, not fully, but um, uh, I see your point definitely, uh, and I also remembered the. Uh, the character in uh, Demons, Dostoevsky's uh, novel, who was uh, uh, 
I think inspired by Turgenev and uh, I, I thought of the way Dostoevsky humiliated him. It, I really felt sorry for the guy. Uh, he, 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 he doesn't deserve <laughs> this, definitely. Um, well, uh, all those writers uh, liked quarreling among themselves, that's for sure. Uh, so let's, let's uh, talk about uh, Dostoevsky then. Oh, Dostoevsky, uh, beardy, weirdy, depressed. And I mean all okay. of that as a compliment. <laughs> okay. Uh, Gogol. Oh, Gogol. I love Gogol. Um, Gogol, happily gloomy, secretly funny. Why secretly? Yeah. He's, He's like quite openly real... funny in his works. Well, yeah, I maybe not secretly. I don't know. I think there's something... Definitely when you read his work in translation, so I've read it in translation and in Russian. When you read it in translation, it is very much, it feels like it's serious. And, and so if you read it and you don't understand Russian and you don't understand scars or whatever, you read it and it's it reads like a fairy tale or a serious proposition. And then you suddenly realize that there are all of these uh ideas and details that are undercutting it and that are very ironic and sarcastic and funny. So I mean that in that sense. Um, mm. But no, it's no secret that that Gogol is funny. You know, he probably is the funniest of all the Russian writers intentionally. Um, I think Dostoevsky or Tolstoy maybe is the most uh, the most unintentionally funny. They are funny. They don't mean to be. Yeah, uh, seems like that. Uh, okay, then Tolstoy. Godlike, mean. He's a mean old man. I'm going to say that he was a mean old man in the end, but genius, genius, mean old man. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Uh, Chekhov. Oh, a Chekhov is. How can I describe him in three words? Humane, loving, emotional. For me, Chekhov is. He's like the psychotherapist of <laughs> Russian literature. You know, he is, you know, it's an, it's extraordinary to believe that his work is created before the time of Freud. You know, there's so many cliches are said about, you know, Chekhov's life as a doctor and his life as a writer. But I think in another era, he would have been a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst because his understanding of the human condition uh, and of our complicated contradictory psychological responses to things um, and the way that we undermine ourselves constantly and we have many, many hidden impulses. Um, his understanding of that is just extraordinary. I, I love, I love Chekhov so much. And he is a writer who, I mean, you know, his writing is so accessible because it's so many short chunks that you can get to grips with, you know, the short stories, the plays, it's all very easy to access. And every time you go back to it, there's something new and something different. He's just extraordinary. That was more than three words. Sorry. But uh, it's okay. <laughs> I like him too. I'm not very uh, good at Blitz, Blitz Vapros. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, uh, on the contrary, uh, uh, brilliant answers. Uh, I wanted to ask if is uh, whether it is true that uh, uh, Chekhov's plays are still very, very popular uh, in uh, British theaters, and uh, that he's one of the most popular uh, playwrights. 
yeah, it, it's a- absolutely true. And we were ta- we were talking earlier about cancellation, um, whether we can use this word or not, and what the meaning of this might be. But I noticed recently there's many new productions of Chekhov coming mm-hmm. um, to British theatre, uh, still on the radio. Um, I've just written a play for radio, for BBC Radio 3, um, which is based on uh, The Wood Demon, um, Chekhov's first play, which eventually was mm. rewritten as Uncle Vanya. Um, mm. So there's, you know, that that, that is, the love, the love for Chekhov is never really affected because he stands alone really as, as a dramatist, you know, as somebody who is really, really beloved of, of certainly British and I think also American audiences, maybe because his work is so eloquent about class, you know, anything that addresses class uh, often has a willing and ready audience amongst the British public and Chekhov is great for that. And also because the, the storytelling and the dialogue is, I don't want to say simplistic, but it's, it's not complex. It's very pure. And so it's very easy to reinterpret it multiple times and it never becomes old. So I've seen, you know, so many different interpretations of Chekhov, you know, classical, contemporary, futuristic, uh, everything. Uh, Yeah, he's still incredibly, incredibly popular as a dramatist. That's good to hear. Uh, let's wrap it up with uh, Nabokov then. Complicated, annoying, beyond me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him to you. I, <clears throat> you clearly love him, so I gift him to you. Nabokov is my gift to you. You can have him <laughs> because I don't really want him. Sorry, Nabokov. Thank fans. you. Thank you. Uh, even though I was really curious to to see what you uh, what you wrote about him in this uh, missing chapter, uh, <laughs> even though you don't uh, include him in the pantheon of Russian greats, it's been a f- fascinating discussion. Viv, thank you very much uh, for your insights. I uh, really recommend your books. All the links are, as usual, in the description. Um, and I'm glad that people all over the world still enjoy Russian greats, Russian literature and other classical literature, even though everybody's speaking about the era of TikTok and uh, attention deficit disorder and short attention span. Uh, I do believe that uh, all, all this uh, has been exaggerated very much because you can uh, swipe through TikToks uh, in the morning and read Tolstoy in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm love Black that. Thank you for watching. Subscribe, hit the subscribe button, hit, hit the bell button next to the subscribe button, not to miss the new videos, new episodes of the podcast. Thank you, Viv. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I will...